The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, March 31st, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. General Flynn has a story to tell. Full quote from Flynn's attorney, Robert Kellner. General Flynn certainly has a story to tell, and he very much wants to tell it, should the circumstances permit. What will be that story? Will the story be delivered to the House and Senate intel committees? Well, those circumstances are immunity. He wants immunity. But I wonder what might that story be? What if immunity isn't given? Might we coax General Flynn to share his fanciful tale, say via an audiobook? It could be in the tone of Tom Clancy. I'm sure he'd like that. Or how about... All happy administrations are alike. Each unhappy administration unhappy in its own way. Oh, oh, and I see this as a series of interlocking short stories where one is slightly larger than the last. You know what? You know what? I'm rethinking that. Maybe that's not the tone he wants to take. For one thing, Flynn's not an unhappy guy. He's a happy guy. I'm going to use Irish on you. That's bullshit, okay? You know what? I think we can concoct a better genre for General Flynn's story. Let's say a fairy tale. Once upon a time, there was a witch. And Mike Flynn and Gretel knew what they must do to get the witch. Yes, that's right. Lock her up. So they relied on a trail of breadcrumbs because smart people with a story they want to tell afterwards leave breadcrumbs. We have all this information about the Russian hacking. And if we don't declassify it and we don't push it up to Capitol Hill or out to our allies in Europe, then what's going to happen is that it's going to come in and it's all going to get lost. And what we think happened was really awful. And we think that measures need to be put in place for this to be prevented in the future. And we need to leave these breadcrumbs for the Senate investigators to find. Okay, let's abandon that angle. Uh, We're not going with breadcrumbs here. Just workshopping this. Mike Flynn, Gretel, leave something other than breadcrumbs to point out where they've been. Follow the trail of dead Russians. Well, they wouldn't be eaten by birds. But you know what? I'm beginning to think that General Flynn's going to insist on immunity for the audiobook also. Self-protection. Also, as part of that deal, maybe he could get his lawyer to throw in one free download a month. Maybe. Good lawyer could do that. On the show today... I go to a place I've avoided thus far, the White House briefing room. I'm feeling salty. I'm feeling saucy. I'm feeling spicy. But first, a large, poorly constructed reptile-like puppet is attacking our town. Or maybe it's a were-beast from an alternative dimension. Or a Texas cult who worships the deity Manos. Someone's got to break down the game film. No, not just someone. Well, someone but also his two robot pals. It's Mystery Science Theater 3000, and it is back. New ones on Netflix. Creator Joel Hodgson and writer Elliot Kalin are here next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. 
He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In the not-too-distant future, next Sunday, A.D., there was a guy named Joel, not too different from you or me. He worked at Gizmonic Institute, just another face in a red jumpsuit. He did a good job cleaning up the place, but his boss didn't like him, so they shot him in the space. Mystery Science Theater 3000, you know the deal, jumpsuited human forced into the cold expanses of space, forced to watch grade D movies with two wisecracking robot friends. And now as we hurtle towards the actual year 3000, sentient robots have, they're getting closer to real, horrific movies still being made, and more relevant to why we're here today is that there's a thing called Kickstarter and Netflix. Add it all up, and Mystery Science Theater 3000 is back, and the title sequence looks like just, again, looks like they've spent tens of fractions of dollars on the thing. So joining me now is Elliot Kalin, who is the head writer of the series, and Joel Hodgson, who is the guy. He was the first Joel. He's the creator of the series. Hey, guys. Hey. All right. Thanks for having us. Did you have to cultivate the fan base to keep them still enthused? Because I know the show was, well, first on your uh, the local Minnesota station, then it went to Comedy Central. Then there was, what, like a sci-fi station iteration that you weren't involved with? Yeah, yeah, Um, exactly. So, so, but uh, after that, it laid fallow for a while. Did you have to cultivate the fans, or were they already there saying, do something? I mean, there's lots of different groups, and there's been ongoing news groups and social media groups, you know, since the show stopped, you know, like 20 years ago. So those people have been active, and um, the fans have kept it alive in their own various ways. And I couldn't even measure that or explain that to you, but but obviously we're really grateful about it. Speaking as someone who started on the other side of the fence, who was a fan very long before I got to actually work on the show, there are, I would say millions of, I guess the best word for it would be sleeper cells of mystery science (laughs) theater fans. At least offensive. Just waiting to be activated. Uh And so I know when the, when the Kickstarter announcement went out, because I didn't come on board until 
after the announcement and the Kickstarter started, it was like a light bulb went on, a thousand light bulbs went on, fireworks went off, like jolted awake. Yeah. like Or in sleeper cell terms. In uh, sleeper cell, it like activated, ready to, yeah. you know, go out and- a Roadside yeah, device. Exactly. And yeah. Just, uh, I just well, want to get the munitions right. I don't want to push the metaphor so far, <laughs> but, but uh, it was just a, a really exciting thing. Like I think there's a lot of fans like me who have wanted this show to come back for a long time and have been thinking about it a lot, even over the many years that it's been away. And so that announcement was enough to just get people super excited and pumped for it. Before Kickstarter, Joel, did you have an idea if this somehow comes around again, if I pitch a network or whatever Kickstarter, did you have really strong ideas about how you would do it anew? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've been working on this for probably the last seven years and just trying to develop it. And, you know, what would be the the new iteration of MSP be like? Like, what would it feel like? And what would be different about it? A lot of the new iteration has a lot to do with people like Elliot, who are people who grew up watching it, liking it, and then are kind of helping me care for it now. I think that has a lot to do with it. What's your take on that, Elliot? Uh, well, one of the interesting things talking to you while we were making the show was talking to somebody who was so close to it, you know, it was your show, that you didn't have the same kind of rosy thoughts about certain aspects of it that I as a fan had, where I, you would be like, some of the sketches, we kind of like threw them together at the last minute, and they didn't really work <laughs> yeah. for me. And I'd be like, no, but that was great. And then I'd go back and watch the stuff, and I'd be like, this actually, this does feel pretty thrown, like, yeah. pretty thrown together at the last minute. There was a lot of recognizing what was really wonderful about the show and what could be, if anything, tweaked a little bit or just changed for the times, that kind of stuff. That's how I feel about it. Like, I, it's really true because, like, the stuff we did with Gypsy, we changed some things with Gypsy. Now, we know people love that character. Gypsy's one of the robots who one of performs the robots maintenance. The show, but, but, but I felt very self-conscious, like, hey, why is she always voiced by a man? Why is that? Like, a person would come to that and go, what's the purpose? Like, can't you find funny women that could voice that character? You know, it's like Panto in England where a woman, a guy's got to play a woman or a woman's got to play a guy. It's not like that. And so I think that's true where you some things are inherited for a good reason. And sometimes things are inherited just because nobody knew what to do with them. Right. Of course, you if, you re, if you recast all the robots as women, oh, my God, Milo Yiannopoulos comes after you. So you got to watch out for oh that. Oh, my God. It's, yeah. it's a whole other you know, thing. I mean, yeah. wh whatever yeah. puts us on the opposite side from Milo Yiannopoulos is not a bad thing. <laughs> Mostly, I think, during our, the course of our normal lives as decent people, we're doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. By loving other people and yeah. caring about what happens to them. Yeah, yeah <laughs> thinking about consequences and so forth. Now, Elliot, the first time I talked to you, it was on the phone and you were a guest because I did a uh, sh series of shows called My Favorite Podcast. And the podcast was The Flophouse, which is your podcast where you and your friends riff on bad movies. Well, so it's a little different because it's not, it's not textbook riffing. We're discussing the movie, but we're not, right. we're not doing kind of like in the moment riffing. And this would work really – I don't think this could work on a podcast. It's not as the movie goes, you're not making wisecracks. It's afterwards. Yeah, you yeah. discuss the movie. In fact, you have to carve out like the three hours for, <laughs> for you guys to get there. And it is a huge <laughs> a suck of time yes. that makes it very difficult to have a regular life with my family. <laughs> Luckily, you've uh, eschewed the regular life with <laughs> yeah, your family. exactly. But was Mystery Science Theater an inspiration? Oh, very much so. I mean, this is Mystery Science Theater is such a part of, I know my creative DNA, the interest in bad movies as a thing to 
look at them at, as a as a thing themselves and not to shun comes from basically that and those like Golden Turkey Award books. Yeah. But those books were different because they were like, this is garbage. It sucks. This is terrible. And Mystery Science Theater was – I couldn't quite put into words why it was different when I was younger, but I think I have a theory about it now. There's always a certain amount of criticism of the movie, but it's an attempt to take something that is bad or not enjoyable and kind of transmute it or recycle it into an enjoyable thing. So like a movie you would never want to sit and watch – I mean like Manos, which you would never want to sit and watch all the way through. And the fact that there's a restored Blu-ray release of that movie is astonishing <laughs> to me. Restored. We only want to know where Valley Lodge is. Which way do we go? There is no place like that around here. Mike, I'm scared. It's getting dark. Well, Torgo, which way is out of here? There is no way out of here. It will be dark soon. There is no way out of here. Uh, that becomes a lot of fun to watch when the work has been put into it by the show and by this mystery science theater riffing process. And so rather than be like, I never want to watch that again, I'm like, yeah, I'll sit down and watch Manos. And like I would in college, I would sit down and watch three episodes in a row of, and I would never watch those movies all by themselves in a row. So like the Flophouse is hopefully in it. We're, I think, a little bit more cynical and, and snarky in a way that is just the, this day and age, you know, this generation. But a hope to try to do the same kind of thing where, like, let's take a movie like Superman versus Batman, which is, like, not a, not enjoyable. Yeah. Like, it's a really unpleasant experience and it's make like something pleasant It's like the Manos – the Manos. It's like the Manos of uh, $200 million budget movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, well, that's the th – the, when you compare the two, like, Manos is – excruciating watch without without the riffing yeah but at least you know like this didn't cost a lot of money yeah these people were just doing it on the side yeah. when they had regular lives with superman versus batman or something like that it's essentially like the only way i can look at it positively is like well this is like a big employment project like this is a public <laughs> works project <laughs> right. that employs thousands of people <laughs> sure this money could have been better spent like feeding homeless people or homeless cats or something like that. But, you know, at least it's given people money they can bring home to their families, you know. The, fer the feral cat audience was soured on Superman versus Batman. <laughs> they didn't like it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're right about these terrible movies. It's like they have those rankings of boxers, the pound for pound. And at like some weight classes, super lightweight. Like how bad can you be? If you weigh 98 pounds and you can do any damage, you know, that's some credit to you. There's something so impressive <laughs> about anyone making a movie at all yeah who doesn't have any money or support from a company yeah like, and if you can't see the boom in most shots that's an accomplishment sure i mean yeah. look at who am i i've never made a movie and i consider myself better knowledgeable about movies than these people but they went out and yeah. did it like yeah. i you probably tried to record a podcast which is just half a movie and like that didn't work even that was difficult yeah. even yeah. that again is wrecking my life <laughs> It, I would imagine that no matter how well-intentioned, it might get a little annoying for all the fans to come up to you frequently. This must be your most frequent comment and, oh, you should do this movie. And, you know, half the time it's like Plan 9 from Outer Space. But is that yeah. is, is that maddening to you, Joel? I don't get it that much, actually. I felt bad once because I, uh, when I met Weird Al Yankovic, I pitched him an idea for a song parody, uh -huh. and the look and the look on his face just told the whole story. Like, oh, that's right. Everybody pitches him song parody ideas. What was it, by the way? It was Star Trek: The Next Generation. It's a shoe. It's a sure fit for first run syndication. What song is that a parody of? That's uh, 
my um, talk about my generation. Oh, my generation. The who? Yeah. Oh yeah, I get it. That's Star good. Star Trek. Son. And then, um, <laughs> and then I kept going. I kept pitching him more ideas. Like, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I didn't keep pitching him ideas, but um, but no, I, I've been pretty lucky. I mean, occasionally online, people will will like on my Twitter feed, and I just really don't even look at them seriously. Like, you know, you're giving me homework, right? <laughs> This is what I do, and so yeah, I tend not to. I tend not to take it too seriously because because then it's the thing about rights. Like they're completely un, uninhibited, and they don't know how much you know. This we're talking about a group of lawyers and having to go in and clear the rights, and it stops being that much fun to talk about. And also, nobody ever gives a TV show an idea, and then when the show uses that that, that idea, they're like, "Thank you." That's great. I'm glad you used my idea. I'll see you later. Yeah. They always want something in exchange for it. There has to be... I think we talked about this with Flophouse. Um, Movies are just technically much more competent. And part of it is that the more recently a movie is made, the more it aligns to how we know how to watch a movie. But, you know, even like horrible movies that Flophouse has take, has done. Did you do Lucky Number Slevin? No, we didn't do no, Lucky you Number Slevin. What, what was the one with like uh, where he was obsessed? There was a certain number, the number. Oh, was number the, 23. Yeah, you did number Perry, 23. Yeah. Okay. But at least there was nothing technically not competent about that. Well, that was a professionally made, yeah, it was a professionally, professionally made, made movie. Right. And the <laughs> level of professionalism of, of Hollywood movies has gone up and the level of professionalism of independent movies has gone up oh, quite yeah. a bit too because the technology is cheaper and those things are just more available so you have to dig really deep to find movies that are incompetently made completely now that being said and this is not necessarily mystery science theater dependent uh there are many movies that in the 90s i thought this looks great and i watch them again now and i'm like what is this so i'm sure in 20 years we'll be watching the movies from now and we'll be like what are they doing yeah, yeah. this looks terrible like yeah. with the, all the highlighted blues and oranges in every scene like what well, well, this looks awful you know i was watching indiana jones and the last crusade with my kids and anytime someone goes over their a cliff it's like a, a comic book or a painting well that's i mean the effects in that like it it looks worse than the than the first indian like it, it, a lot of action movies yeah, they for got some a little reason, ahead of themselves about what they thought they were able yeah. to accomplish oh, yeah I, yeah, I I totally agree. It, it yeah, it looks like it's previs. You're seeing a movie that includes its previs with it. What's a previs? You know when they when they kind of map out what the special effects will look like. Yeah, and that's yeah, what yeah. That yeah. movie looks like is oh, this isn't rendered yet, is it? <laughs> oh, it there's, is rendered. You're done. <laughs> there's and there's so many movies where the computer effects now age very poorly, very fast. They'll be like, we'll make a monster out of computer animation. And then you watch it a couple of years later and you're like, so they're fighting a cartoon right now. Like, this looks like a cartoon. <laughs> this doesn't even, like, a puppet would have been better because it would have looked like a real thing, you know. Elliot Kalin's the writer for the new Mystery Science Theater 3000. Joel Hodgson is the creator. Uh, Jonah Ray is the new guy in the jumpsuit. Also, Patton Oswalt's in this. It's uh, 14 episodes this year, and it starts with a monster attacking Denmark, I think, maybe? Yeah, Denmark. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank Thank you. you. And now the spiel. We at The Gist have discovered a trend. So today in New York, it was raining buckets. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory opens next month on Broadway. That protagonist's name is Charlie Bucket. This weekend's NCAA tournaments can all come down to one bucket. And Ted Cruz warned you 
of the bait and switch the American Health Care Act represented. I've called bucket three the sucker's bucket. In our never-ending quest to put our fingers on the zeitgeist, the zeitlofel, the spirit of the bucket, we bring you this answer from Sean Spicer's White House briefing on Thursday. He was asked to explain the current White House thinking on the many Russian investigations. I'm not aware of anything directly. I'd have to look into that in terms of, again, there's two sides of this. One is the information side and two is the policy um, and the activities and the, the legal piece of what, what happened. Uh, and, I, and I don't, there, there's, those are big buckets, if you will. Now, on this show, I haven't gone to White House briefings too much. You could argue that anything the White House spokesman says is, by definition, legitimate news. But if you've watched this White House spokesman, you know the news is that what he says is rarely legitimate. So I think the only value of a Spicer press conference or a Kellyanne Conway interview is just for entertainment. We bait him, we mock him. I mean, maybe we draw some ratings and cheap laughs. And so far, I have said I shan't go there. But today, I was compelled. Because today, Spicer took questions from the White House press corps, as he does. And White House correspondent Maggie Haberman called it the most SNL yet of these briefings. And Bill Kristol said, I've avoided watching Spicer briefings, but am at MSNBC watching this one. The nonstop dishonesty and irresponsibility is amazing. I was intrigued, so I waited in. So today, Spicer, having abandoned the Devin Nunes diversion and having been burned by the out-of-context Comey clip caper, trotted out a new one. The Farkas Focus. Comments by a senior administration official, foreign policy expert Dr. Evelyn Farkas, together with previous reports that have been out, raised serious concerns on whether or not there was an organized and widespread effort by the Obama administration to use and leak highly sensitive intelligence information for political purposes. Dr. Farkas, Dr. Evelyn Farkas, was an Obama administration official who was on MSNBC three or four weeks ago, and she described knowing that the Russians were in conversation with Team Trump and worrying if the Trump campaign became the Trump administration, that they would suppress information that was embarrassing to them. Because I had a fear that somehow that information would disappear with the senior people who left. So it would be hidden away in the bureaucracy um, that the Trump folks, if they found out how we knew what we knew about their, the staff, the Trump staff's dealing with Russians, that they would try to compromise those sources and methods, meaning we would no longer have access to that intelligence. So I became very worried because mm. not enough was coming out into the open and I knew that there was more. Now, this interview from March 2nd has suddenly become central to Trump and Spicer's argument, mainly because right-wing talk show hosts have begun playing it and harping on it and saying, see, this is evidence the Obama administration spied on Trump. Spicer wanted to further that line of, oh, shall we say, reasoning. And so where has any of the reporting been in, in your paper about Evelyn Farkas? Problem is, Farkas left the government in 2015, so she had nothing to do with Trump's wiretap allegations, which were about 2016. Oh, no, I did it. I just mentioned specific dates. It's interesting that now we're arguing over the date, not the substance. 
This is another Spicer tactic. When Spicer says something that doesn't make sense or is contradicted by further revelations or contradicted by his own statements, he's often asked to clear up details by a member of the press. So he pounces on the very fact that we're paying attention to detail. I I understand that. But if the allegation is, well, it was actually on the 1st of December or the 10th of December versus the 31st of October, I think that we're starting to split some serious hairs here. Spicer also likes to jump on a word. So there was another question, a strain of questions at the briefings. What was Devin Nunes doing on White House grounds? Now, when you say that he was on White House grounds, be very careful of the verb you use in place of on. As Chairman Nunes has said himself, he wasn't hiding or roaming. How about traipsing or sashaying or gallivanting? What if he was half gallivanting, half trotting, sort of a galloprance? At one point, NPR's Tamara Keith asked the question about old Doc Farkas and the Wayback Machine. My understanding is that Dr. Farkas left the administration in 2015. Um, so okay. why is what she said in 2017 relevant to something that allegedly happened in 2016? I, the question I would have for you is exactly. Not a question. The presumption seems to be, why is it interesting? Not a presumption. And you know, When it comes to Farkas, everything Evelyn Farkas, there is just nothing there. There is nothing that helps the Trump team's argument. Well, really nothing except for uh, maybe this. Sean Spicer's pitch for an independent film that traces one woman's strange and awakening journey from Moscow to Minsk. Now there is a story to tell. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube prefers the Evelyn Farkas rewrite of the Ben Affleck Oscar-winning film Argus Farkas. Mary Wilson, just producer, comes to praise Evelyn Farkas not to bury her. For one thing, she lacks the Farkas carcass. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, recommends that Evelyn Farkas quit the high-profile world of think tankery and right-wing radio punching bag and follow her dreams of opening an organic grocery the Farkas Harvest Market. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, notes that Evelyn Farkas comes from a long line of statesmen. Her grandfather was Marcus Farkas. You never heard of him? What about his grandfather, Otto von Bismarcus Farkas? The gist, Evelyn, we do apologize for the sport we've had with your name, but you were to us a muse. And we will always allow Farkas to spark us, regardless. Umperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>